Uh, if you got your Bibles, First John chapter five. I'm just going to warn you. I'm about to read the whole text for us, and there's a pretty good chunk here in the middle of what we're about to read that's really confusing. So, if uh, if you're kind of listening or reading along, and you're like, "What, John? Did you just write?" Well, we'll get back to it. So let's read, starting in verse 13 to 21, the rest of the book. So John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those, who are, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Done. Close the book. Uh, All right, well, we Americans love to talk about faith. Uh, I was thinking about some bumper stickers that I've seen in my life, like... You know, like the Got Milk bumper sticker that just says, Got Faith. Uh, so I was thinking about that bumper sticker, and I looked up other faithy type uh, bumper stickers. I found quite a bit, um, just I Believe or I Heart Faith, right? Faith Up! Uh, and then I saw one that says, A Person of Faith, with a yin-yang next to it. Uh, one that says, Baha'i Faith. You might, maybe some of you know about the Baha'i religion. Uh, then I found, these are some good ones. A little faith goes a long way. How about this? Faith it till you make it. Uh, and then my favorite, America needs a faith lift. Sounds like I have a list, but no. it's. Um, well, all of these are just talking about faith, right? Just, just, just have faith, right? Uh, you guys know that I hate the movie The Polar Express, right? Because what's the, what's the main song of this? Uh, if you just believe. Like, it doesn't matter if you just believe in Santa Claus, who isn't real. Just believe in him anyway, you know? Just believe. It doesn't matter if it's real. Just believe, and everybody will be happy, right? Uh, have you guys seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Yes, yes. Uh, right? What's, what's one of the tests that he has to, to accomplish as he's trying to save his father, James Bond? Uh, he, right, he's got his book, and he sees the guy has to make this, like, step of faith. On, there's, like, he's on a canyon. There's this giant chasm, and there's nothing there, right? But what does he do? He just puts his foot out and steps, and then the bridge appears, right? He throws the dirt out, and he can see that there actually was a bridge. But the thing about Indy was he didn't really believe it was there, it was the love of his father that he was willing to risk this leap of faith, but he was pretty skeptical it was going to happen, right? 
it wasn't his faith that was, that was going to reward them. Whether he believed in the bridge being there or not, it was still going to be there, right? It was going to save him whether he believed or not. And you can see in his face, he was actually quite surprised when it did save him. Um, well, here's what I'm talking about. Uh, when I was looking up other bumper stickers, I also found some atheist, like, snarky ones about faith. And I think a lot of their snarky bumper stickers criticizing faith were well-founded. They say, one says, faith equals intellectual suicide. What they're saying is, if you just believe, like the Polar Express, just believe in something, if it's true or not, uh, you're committing intellectual suicide. You're believing something that's not true, right? Uh, And then, one, this is, okay, caveat here. This is not true uh, but it, they are criticizing this kind of false religion, this false faithiness of American culture. And one says, Jesus saves, and then this is big, Jesus saves, and then in small letters, you from thinking for yourself. Jesus saves you from thinking for yourself, is what the thing said. Right? So if you, if you, if you just got this, kind of what Pastor Ryan talked about this morning, just this religion as an enhancer, you just live your life, and then if you can throw a little religion in, it makes your life better, right? This is what America, typical American religion is, typical American Christianity, typical American faithiness, right? Just believe in something, you know? Who cares if it's real or not? Well, in his conclusion to this whole book, John is going to tell us that we don't have blind faith. We don't believe in something if it's, even if it's real or not. In fact, we'd better know that it actually is real, which is why he starts his letter saying, it is real. I touched him. I saw him. I heard him. It's real. So we don't just have faith in some sort of spirituality or some sort of nameless God. We don't just try the best we can at the end of our life, cross our fingers, and hope for the best, right? No. We have a sure faith that results in in actually a real and vibrant intellectual life rather than intellectually intellectual suicide. So in short, John tells his readers, us, that the entire intent of this letter— is that we may know, without a doubt, certain things about God and certain things about ourselves. So, what you've got in your notes here is he writes, so the Ephesians, and so that we, don't fill these in yet, we'll keep going, but we can know God, we can know our identity, we can know our position, and we can know who or what is true. So the first thing, we can know God. So even at John's and my insistence every week on assurance that we can know that we are born of God, that we can know that we are saved, uh, that we can know that our sins have been forgiven. He knows, and I know that many of you, after last week's sermon, might be asking, am I really born of God? Do I have spiritual rebirth? Do I actually love God and His commandments? I'm full of doubt. Well, John, like I said, is giving us his entire reason for writing this letter. In 5.13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John, first of all, is directing or is directly countering this idea of American spirituality that we just have uh, faith in faith, right? Uh, Most Americans believe in God. There's a growing number of like kind of violent atheists who are like pushing this idea that any kind of 
belief in God is bad. But most Americans will say, yeah, I believe in God, sure. Uh, And most Americans value this idea of faith. But John is saying believing in God, believing in faith, isn't good enough to save you. Faith doesn't save you. Here's your next blank. Listen, this sounds weird. Faith doesn't save you. That sounds weird, right? We're like, we, we say, uh, by faith alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, all these things. But faith does not save you. Do you understand that? The object of your faith saves you. It's not this idea of just believing that saves you. The object of your belief must save you. If, if you saw me, Jonathan, if you saw me, take your chair, remove all of the screws. I took everything out of this chair, but then I saw you, like, then go to sit down on it. I would say, Jonathan, stop! Did you not just see me take all the screws out of the chair? It will not hold you. But you, you're like, man, I believe. I have faith in that chair. It's going to hold me. I believe in that chair. Well, what's going to happen when you try to sit down in the chair? You're going to need to go to the chiropractor tomorrow because it's going to crash on you. If the thing cannot hold you, it will not save you. It will not hold you. So this idea of just believing or having faith in faith is utterly ridiculous. And these atheists who are making these snarky bumper stickers are absolutely correct in ridiculing American Christians or American spirituality guys who just say, just believe, man. Just believe. It's like sitting in a chair with no screws. That's ridiculous. So John says, as he said over and over again, it's not just believing in God. It's not just believing in faith that saves you. It's believing in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ that will save you. 4.2, he said, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Last week, this the verse just prior to this, 5.12, we saw, whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Who cares if you have faith in faith? If you do not have faith in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, it won't save you. So, the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection is what saves you. Faith does not save you. Faith in Christ saves you. But then he says, if you do have faith in Jesus Christ, you can know. You, you without a doubt, can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you are his. You can know that you have been born of him. So, but he says, if, if you are believing in him now, he says, I write these things to you who believe, like now, who are believing currently, who are believing presently. He doesn't say, I'm writing these things to you who, when you were kids at camp, believed in Jesus Christ. I'm writing these things to you who, when you were a kid, uh, when you were like four and you were like having bath time with your mom and you said, I don't want to go to hell. And she said, well, just believe in Jesus. And you said, all right, let's do it. I don't want to go to hell, right? So he's not saying that. He's not saying when you were four, when you believed in Jesus, he's saying, I'm writing these things to you who believe presently in the name of Jesus Christ. And also not like those who in chapter two went out from us, not those who stopped believing in Jesus, those of you who are believing 
Those of you who are walking in the light, like in chapter 1, seeing your sin as really sin, and those of you who are actually confessing your sin to others and to God, those of you who are trusting in the blood of Jesus to cleanse you, now I'm writing these things to you that you may know. You can be absolutely sure if you are trusting in him now, presently, currently. So keep on believing him. What's the, what's the implication of if when you're 70 and you're not believing in Jesus, if you're not trusting in his blood for the forgiveness of sins, that you maybe never believed and you certainly can't know when you're 70. So keep on believing. Keep on trusting him. That's why John writes over and over and over, abide in him, stay close to him, keep the life of the vine in you. Keep yourself near the cross. So, we can know God. What is, but I never really talked about God here, right? I just talked about Jesus, talked about forgiveness of sins. Let's read 14 and 15 together. John says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to God's will, God hears us. And if we know that God hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him, of God. So, at first, it looks like John just changed the subject, right? Kind of. He's been talking about how we have been born of God, how we might know that we have been born of God, tests for our spiritual rebirth, the testimony that God makes of himself being a person, Jesus Christ, life in Christ, eternal assurance, all this stuff. And then he says, he's talking about assurance, and then he says, and if you want a new car, just pray for it, and he'll give it to you. You can know that you are his, and if you want to get into a good college, just pray, and he'll give it to you, right? Seems like he just kind of took a left turn and just started saying, whatever you want, just ask, and God will give it to you. But first of all, before I tell you why John isn't changing the subject, is, is this true? Is this true that if you want a new car, you just pray, and he gives it to you? We've talked a lot about this from the Sermon on the Mount, from some of our parables, from uh, our look through the Proverbs about prayer and God answering prayer. What would you say to someone in your class or some, a friend, a neighbor? He comes to you, she comes to you, and says, Hey, I was reading 1 John 5, and it said that if I ask of God to give me something— He'll give it to me. Well, I've been praying for a new Camaro for a year, and it still hasn't shown up in the driveway. I don't believe John. He's a liar. What would you say to him? God isn't a genie, right? But, but John says, if I ask of him, he kind of looks like a genie, right? This is a hard question. Hold on. Yeah, Selena? Um, it's that it's not, you know, not just that you need everything you want. Everything you want is Yeah, so we've said God's cares more for our holiness than our happiness, right? Who doesn't want a genie? Everybody wants a genie. That's awesome. But, oh, come on. Everybody wants a genie. 
but Allison saw a very, very important phrase that we read. This phrase that John says, according to his will. If we ask something according to his will. So when we, uh, we're going through Proverbs, we, we uh, referred to Psalm 37. Anybody know what Psalm 37 for is? Anybody? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So what we said was that when we start delighting ourselves in the Lord, our desires become God's desires, not vice versa. God's, de- God's desires don't become your desires. When we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, God doesn't say, oh, you know what? What I want for you most is for you to have a new car. No, our desires become His desires. When we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, and we begin to pray for things, not selfishly, but we pr- begin to pray for things that we were praying for today, that people might believe in the gospel, that we might believe in the gospel and trust God more fully. So we begin to pray for things, what John says, that are according to his will. And we also pray for the entire range of how God might respond. We pray with thanksgiving for how he might say yes or how he might say no, right? And this is what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Remember what he prayed? What did he pray the night, the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yeah. He says, if there's any other way, God, for me to not receive the judgment of your judgment on the world on my head, I'd, I'd be willing to do that, God. Give me another way. Let's do this. And did God answer his prayer? Some might say God just ignored him, right? He said, nope. But he did answer him, right? He said, no, this is my plan for you and for the entire world. And Jesus, with thanksgiving, thanked him for answering the prayer, even though he answered it negatively. He answered it in a way that he was not directly asking. So when we pray, we thankfully, we, with thanksgiving, uh, pray for however God might answer. So, we just talked a lot about, about how we might answer our friend who says God isn't acting like the genie that John says he is. But here's John's point. Here is why I don't think he's changing the subject. I don't think he's talking about getting our prayer requests answered here. I don't think he's saying we have a God who's a genie. And I don't think he's changed the subject of talking about our assurance of life in Christ. He's still talking about our assurance, our confidence. He says this is our confidence that if we ask anything, he hears us. John is saying, how incredible! This God who made the supermoon, this God who made... The aurora borealis, the northern lights, right? This God who made the stars and the sun, he's also made you, and he hears you. Not only does he hear you, but he hears you who were once an enemy of his. He hears you uh, because he has made you alive. He has made you a friend of Christ, and he has made you an adopted son or daughter. Amazing. So here is your next blank here. I think the emphasis of verses 14 and 15 is not on the answering of God, but it's on the hearing. God hears us. Pastor Ryan talked about that this morning. That's amazing that he hears us. Listen, how silly would it be if I every day just called the White House operator 
and said, uh, yeah, this is Nathan in Albuquerque. I'd like to talk to the president. Uh, do you, is there a reason for your call? Uh, yeah, I just have a pothole in my street in front of my house. I'd like for the president to maybe see if he can get something done about that. I'll get hung up on, right? But if I did it every day, every day, uh, yeah, I'd like to speak to President Obama about this pothole. He still hasn't done anything, right? I would never get a, what we might say, a hearing with the president, right? I would never get him to actually hear my request about my pothole. I could never just walk into the Oval Office, sit down over a cup of coffee, and have a hearing with the president. You know how I do get a hearing with the president? How might this happen? How might I get a hearing with President Obama? I know somebody really, really important who's friends with him, right? Like, I have, like, a senator from New Mexico is, like, my neighbor growing up. And this senator is, like, really tight with President Obama. And so he can get me a hearing. Well, imagine a being who is infinitely more powerful and with more authority than President Obama, like the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And John here, along with the writer of Hebrews, is saying that we can approach confidently, not the Oval Office, but we can approach confidently the very throne of grace on which God sits. Do you know why? Because we know somebody. We know somebody more than just a state senator. We know the second person of the Trinity. We know Jesus Christ, God's Son. We can get a hearing with God the Father whenever we want because we have an advocate, John calls him in chapter 2. Remember this? An advocate, a lawyer who argues not on our behalf, but on his own behalf. So because of the name of Jesus Christ, John says, we actually know God. We can communicate with the God of the universe as we would with our dad, with our father. This is incredible. So John here is talking about not the answering of our prayers, but the actual hearing of our prayers, that God hears us, us sinners, and us just little tiny, one of seven billion people in the world. Amazing. And John is saying this gives us confidence that we actually know God. But then, since John starts talking about us making individual personal requests in the hearings with God, he can't help but thinking about the family of God, as he's been doing for like the last five chapters, how he talks about over and over and over and over again. We have to love our brothers, love the brothers, love those who are in Christ. So he can't help himself when he brings up praying for yourself that he starts to begin talking about praying for others. Okay, we don't have time to bog down here, bog down here, but in 516, you might have, when we read this earlier, you might have perked up and said, what did he just say? And you might have said, what did he just say? Because this is one of the most confusing verses in the entire Bible. More has been written about this verse than maybe any other verse. When I asked Pastor Ryan this week what he thought about 516, what he thought about this verse, he said, I don't know. I never taught First John, and that's one of the reasons why I've never taught First John, so I don't have to get to 516. Uh, he's, <laughs> he said that if there's one question he had for God when he gets to heaven— if God does entertain these silly questions, Pastor Ryan would ask John what the heck 5.16 means, what the sin that leads to death is. This is confusing. So 
We don't have time <laughs> to really go super deep into this. But, quickly, first of all, John says that there's a sin that leads to death, and there are also sins that don't lead to death. First of all, we need to not take this verse out of context from the rest of the Bible, but we know that all sin is unrighteousness, right? All sin is like open rebellion against God, and all sin actually does lead to our physical and spiritual death, just like Adam, right? All sin interrupts our communion with God, our relationship with God. It doesn't change our union with God. We are found in Christ, right? We can't do anything that will make us more righteous or more unrighteous in Christ. But, so it doesn't disrupt our union, but it does disrupt our communion with Him. And then, but, listen, there are dozens and dozens of interpretations and options out here. But here's what I think John's talking about when he says there's a sin that leads to death. The sin that leads to death in 516 is probably under the umbrella of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about in Matthew 12. Jesus says there's a sin that is unforgivable. It's a sin uh, called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is exactly the kind of belief and action of those who denied the teaching of the apostles and left the church in John 2, 1 John 2. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what we described last week. Remember the picture that we had of God being on the witness stand in however, uh, what's the word, however sacrilegious this may be, is God cannot be asked and put on the witness stand, but God is in the courtroom saying, everything that I say about myself is true, and here's my testimony. It's him. It's Jesus Christ. And then there are some of us out here in the, in the courtroom, John says in chapter 5, that say, I don't believe him. I don't believe his testimony. He's a liar. This is the person committing a sin that leads to death. This is a, a person who is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, who is disbelieving God's testimony about himself. Uh, I want to be careful here. Some of you might be thinking, oh no, have I done this? Have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Have I committed the sin that will, that will lead to death? Well, tons of commenters have said that if you're worried that you have committed the sin that leads to death, if you're worried that you have committed the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then it's proof that you have not committed it. Because those of us who are struggling with our sin, who are coming to God asking in repentance, or coming in repentance asking for forgiveness, you are clearly not committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you're clearly not saying it. You're a liar, right? So, but if you stay in a continual state for the rest of your life of condemning God as a liar, then you can, by nature, not be forgiven of your sins, right? Because you are never asking for forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so, John is saying, now, he says, this is weird. He says, for those... Uh, there is a, the last sentence of chapter or verse 16. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that or should pray for him. So John is saying, you don't have to pray for that person who is in such fist-shaking defiance of, you are a liar, God. Notice he doesn't prohibit it. He doesn't say, I do not allow you to pray for that person. Never, ever, ever pray for that person. He doesn't say that. He just says, 
I do not say that one should pray for that or for them. In other words, I'm not commanding you to pray for that kind of defiance. He's going to get what's coming to him. If you want to pray for his new birth, go ahead. Uh, but it's better to pray for our brothers. When we see a brother or sister in sin, the kind of sin that we know is interrupting their fellowship with God and with other people, it should grieve us. Notice what he says. He says, he doesn't say, when you see a brother or sister committing sin, don't like go to them and condemn them and make fun of them. Or No, he says, just pray. Pray for them first. This, we are so moved and anguished when we see a brother or sister in sin that we pray for their confession. We pray that God would sustain life and restore communion. So, here's the end of our first point. We know God intimately enough as Father as He hears our prayers for ourselves and as He hears our prayers for our brothers and sisters. We know God more intimately than we could ever know the President of the United States. Amazing. We know God. Okay, so three more things that we can know for those who presently believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And these three things, we're going to go much more quickly because John has written about these already at length. He's just kind of reiterating himself. But verse, eight, verse 18, John says that we can know our identity. 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So if you're a Christian, if you've been born of God, you no longer sin anymore, right? Right? If you are a Christian, you don't sin any longer. That's what John says, right? That's what John says in chapter 3, right? We talked about that too. If you're a Christian, you don't sin. If you do sin, you're not a Christian, right? That's what John says. Well, that's what he says. Right? He just said it. How do we answer? Again, your classmate, your neighbor comes and says, Hey, I was reading 516 or, I was, or 518, and I was reading chapter 3, and I'm still sinning, and I call myself a Christian. So uh, what's the deal? How do you answer that? all you Bible scholars out there, all you First John scholars. How do you answer this? Anybody? Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah. It's slow. Our sanctification is slow. But also, how do we know from something that John has written that... This isn't true. How do we know from something that he very explicitly says that we don't just immediately stop sinning? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I would just say, hey, let's go back and read chapter 1 where John says, if we say that we do not sin or we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves. We are always in a sinful state, but we are becoming more and more like Christ. So John is saying our trajectory has changed. What's trajectory mean? Direction. Yeah, the way we were going. Before Christ, we were straight on a direction, on a trajectory towards death, towards unrighteousness, towards Satan himself. Now our trajectory has been altered. Our trajectory now is on 
a trajectory, a direction toward righteousness, towards becoming more like Jesus. And our identity, our greatest sense of, a, of belonging is now in Christ, in his life. So we've said it's not that we become sinless, but we do what? Sin less, right? We do sin less. We're becoming more and more like Jesus because we share in his life. We'll still sin because we walk in the light of God's holiness. We see our sin clearly. We confess of our sin. We hate our sin because... We are motivated out of it because, not just because of our hatred of sin, but because of the joy of Jesus who offers it. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. One old Scottish preacher said this. He said, For every one look at the self, take ten looks at Christ. It's one of your blanks. You see what he's saying? For every one look at the self, take ten looks to Christ. He's saying, don't be so consumed with yourself like i'm such a failure why can't i stop this thing why can't i stop being this way don't be so inward and so just down on yourself for every one of those looks take 10 looks at the cross it's what jesus and the glory of jesus on the cross that's what motivates you out of sin not an inward looking on yourself. So our identity, our identity now belongs to him. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. So we know God and we know our identity as sons and daughters born of God. And similarly, we know our position. We can know our position. 519. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, this is an extremely important verse. Really important. Let me read it again. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, Satan himself. Our first inclination might be to push back a little bit on John. Come on, John. Really? The whole world is lying in the power of the evil one? Surely there's a lot wrong in the world. For the most part, I think people are basically good, and the trajectory of mankind is getting better. It's ultimately optimistic. Right? Come on, John. The whole world lies in the power of Satan? What? I don't see anybody at my school, like, sacrificing a live goat on the high school lawn. Come on! What? But this is the biblical position. This is a total agreement with other New Testament teachers, like Paul and like Jesus. Paul calls Satan the god of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And he calls him the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. And Jesus, several times in John's gospel, calls Satan the ruler of this world. What? I think God was the ruler of this world. Well, listen, the decisive blow has been dealt to Satan, right, at the cross. He's like a mortally wounded lion or a bear or a pit bull or something, right? And the only authority that this mortally wounded animal has, has been given to him from God. But nevertheless, just like a mortally wounded bear can still kill you, right? Even though that bear is going to die, it can still do some damage on the way out, right? Like a mortally wounded animal can still do considerable damage. Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is still very capable 
of dealing enormous damage to this world. The prince of the power of the air. The air that we breathe is his same rebellion against God, his same ingratitude toward God. So we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter evil in the world. We shouldn't be surprised when sinners act like sinners, right? We should expect it because the world lives in and lives for a kingdom of the prince of the power of the air, a kingdom that has its face set against God. So I've been quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones a lot, but here's another one. He says, John is saying, it is my attitude, it is my, he's saying your, it's my attitude toward this, this verse that will determine my own conduct and my behavior. If I am in a world that is speaking to me and addressing me constantly in its newspapers, in its books, and then he was writing this in the 50s, but in its Facebook, in its Twitter, in its TV shows, in its movies, in its blogs that we read, its whole organization of life and its outlook. It is always making suggestions to me and its advertisements. The people with whom I speak with and whom I mix, all of these things that we just said are making appeals to me, saying this is better. This is better than the God of the universe. This is better. So my response and reaction to all this will be determined by the fact of whether I agree with the doctrine of this verse or not. If I agree that the world is under rebellion, is under the power of Satan. If I don't believe that, then I'll say, yeah, you know, the world's not that bad. Not that bad. I can just watch whatever I want, listen to whatever I want. Eh, who cares, right? But if I do agree with this, then I will realize that the world is calling me away from God and to itself. So, Those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, however, can know their position. Not as one of those in the world, but we can know that we've been transferred out of that darkness and into light. Our belonging to Him, our position in Him is firm. We can know without a doubt that our Master and Lord is no longer the Prince of the power of the air, but is now the God of light, who loves us as a Father. And we, with confidence, can agree with John in one, or 1 John 4.4. 4, he, he says, You have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you, the life of Christ, is greater than the prince of the power of the air. That is great. And what should this produce in us, first of all? Not only great confidence, but it should produce in us great compassion for those who are still enslaved to the ruler of this age, who are enslaved to the prince of the power of the world. It should never produce in us an arrogance. should never produce in us condescension or utter condemnation. You people of the darkness, you people of the world, thank God I'm not like them, all right? Like the Pharisee? No. It should produce in us the same longing that John expressed in one four that his joy would somehow be incomplete until these people, his readers, believed in Jesus seeing our unbelieving friends around us who are perishing under the prince of the power of the air should produce in us a great compassion, a great, great longing. But it also should produce in us a very humble thanksgiving that we are not in the kingdom of darkness any longer, right? We are redeemed in a changed position. 
So we know confidently our position has been transferred out of that and into this, the kingdom of light. So we need to be careful, right? Careful that we're not being drawn back to that. The world every day, through everything that we just mentioned, it's TV shows, it's Facebooks, it's magazines, it's Twitter, is saying, this is better, this is better, come back, come back, this is better, stop believing in Jesus, this is better, right? We need to be aware of that. Okay, and lastly, we can know who is true. 520. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. It's kind of weird. John ends his letter here at first glance with much less structure than Paul does, right? How does Paul end his letters? What does he do? Like in the last chapter of nearly all of his letters, what does he do? He gives some, like, parting commands, right? But then what does he normally do? Come on, what does Paul do? Like in Romans or 1 Corinthians, what is, what is he, what is, how does he end a letter? Yeah! Hey, all you Corinthian church, say hi to all my brothers and sisters out there. He lists some names. Say hi to them. Right? He like will give a little ending prayer for them. Like he, 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 you know it's coming to an end when Paul starts ending his letter. Right? It seems that John just stopped writing. And then he gives this like really weird command that totally came out of left field. He hasn't talked about idols once in this book. And then he says, keep yourself from them. What? But I think there's some really great structure here in John's letter. How did John open his letter? Do you remember from nine, ten weeks ago? was the very first thing that John said in 1-1, like 1-1 through 4. What is he talking about? I'll allow you to cheat and flip over if you want. Okay, well, he says, I'm writing this letter so that you might have fellowship with God. I'm writing this letter. The way you have fellowship with God is because of the God, Jesus Christ, that I saw, I touched, I felt, I heard, all of these things. He is true. He is true because I saw him. I not only saw him before he was killed, I saw him on the cross. I was there. I watched him die. I saw the blood come out of his side. I saw them take him down from the cross. I saw him bury, saw them bury him. And then three days later, I saw him with my eyes. I saw the resurrected Christ. He is true. This testimony that I'm giving you is true because I saw him. And now he's closing his letter in the same way. Jesus Christ has come and he is true. He is Giving, he has given us understanding about God because he is true. We have fellowship with God. We are in him, his son Jesus Christ, because he is true. So now I'm writing this letter so that you may know that you can have fellowship with God, as opposed to idols, which aren't true. His last sentence and command seems to be, like we said, just completely out of left field. Keep yourselves from idols. But why should you keep yourself from idols? Because they aren't true. Does it do you any good 
if you're in Ephesus to bow down and pray to a golden figure, does it do you any good? Does anyone actually listen to that prayer? It's not true. No one hears. And while we've talked about this over and over and over again, we don't have little golden figures. We certainly have our idols, right? An idol is anything that takes the place of the worship that is due to only God. So we worship every day idols. We worship the idol of success, of popularity, of attractiveness, of intelligence, of stuff, cars and clothes and TVs and Xboxes. We worship the idol of laziness. We love it. We worship laziness more than we worship God. We worship guys. We worship girls. We think that they will give us finally some sense of identity and security that only God could provide. Anything that you find yourself longing for because you think it will give you security is an idol that you are worshiping. And John says, keep yourself from it because it's not true. I've quoted this C.S. Lewis quote several times, but he says, see if you guys can finish this for me. He says that human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find what? Anybody remember? Yeah, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying, trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. This is what we do. We say, God, I know that you're offering yourself as our final place of delight and happiness, but I don't want it. I'd rather find it in something else. And if you're honest with yourself, isn't this true for you? The things other than God which are promising you security, aren't they ultimately leaving you unsatisfied? So John says, don't settle for those things. Keep yourself from them because you are, they are not true. Lewis, again, why would you, when you could know God through him who is true, why would you keep yourself content with a plate of mud, a mud pie in a slum when there is a holiday at the beach offered you? Why would you keep sticking your face in a plate of mud and eating it when there's like, a big, juicy turkey leg at the beach, right? Why would you do that? Why would you go back to these idols who are not true when there is a God who is true offering himself to you through Christ? You may not have realized it, but I've titled this entire series through First John, Fellowship with God. This has been the, the theme of nearly every sermon. Knowing, fellowshipping, communing, having open and daily relationship with God. So I'll close our entire look at 1 John. This is your last blank here. This is a quote from J.I. Packer. He asks, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. And what is the best thing in life? To know God. What were you made for? What were you created for? To know the God who created you. What aim should be the greatest aim in your life? What should motivate you daily as you wake up and as you go to sleep? To know God. And what is better than anything in this world in your entire life, better than a boyfriend or a girlfriend, better than a new I don't know, a new TV, a new car, a new wardrobe, what is better than 
being the most popular kid in school? What is better than getting into the best college? What is better than all of these things that we worship? Knowing God. That's what John has taught us for five chapters now, that we can know God through his son, Jesus. And that is astounding and amazing. 